0: Happy New Year's Eve. Hope everybody had a good Christmas. Uh, We're going to be in Hebrews 11 this morning. Hebrews 11 in the beginning of chapter 12 as well. Hebrews 11 and then the beginning of chapter 12. Uh, I'm excited to be gathered this morning. I mean, I'm excited to be gathered every morning, but particularly on a day like today, uh, New Year's Eve. I I personally am a big fan of... Of New Year's Eve and New Year's Day celebrations. Uh, I really enjoy them. Uh, I am both nostalgic uh, and I often am thinking about the future as well. Uh, I may have a problem with being present in the present uh, but uh, I really enjoy this time. It's a time for us to reflect on the past year and everything that it held and it's a great time to think about the upcoming year and everything that it could potentially hold. And because of the looking back and looking forward that this time of year often causes us to do, I think we often end up doing a lot of looking in. That's what New Year's resolutions are essentially about. It's, it's seeing who am I, where am I at today, and then how can I improve? How can I be better? What are things that I may not like about myself, or what are some things that I think I should be doing? Essentially, it's a time to think about who you have been, who you are now, and who you want to become. It's thinking about what you value, how you spend your time, what consumes your thoughts. And so as I was thinking about today, we're not in a series, um, but it's New Year's Eve. As I was thinking about what to preach specifically today... And thinking about the, the spirit of reflection and of self-evaluation, my, my mind immediately jumped to this passage. Hebrews 11, in the beginning of chapter 12. It discusses both the past, the present, and the future. And it shows us what it is that Christians are to value, which is faith. And I think particularly for, for our church, for Pillar Church of Woodlawn, I thought faith was a really... Uh, Valuable thing to teach on today. As I think about the past and the people who set out to start this church, to plant this church, they did so in faith. It takes faith to leave a church that you are comfortable at, where life is good, and nothing's wrong with the church. It's a healthy church. And to go and set out to start a church where there either hasn't been one previously or there was an unhealthy version of one potentially. It's a hard thing to do, but it's a faithful thing to do. And then as I think about this past year, with turnover, leadership change, different things feeling like it may be an upheaval, I think about the faith that each of you have displayed over the past year. Faith that God will sustain. Faith in who God is. And so today, as we think about this past year and as we think about the future, both for us individually and then also us as a church, I think faith is a valuable thing for us to look at. And so today we're going to see the definition of faith. We're going to see examples of faith, faith fleshed out. We're going to see how we live in faith. And then we're going to look at the source of our faith, faith in the flesh. And so instead of reading it all at once like we typically do and then diving in, because it's a pretty long passage, we're just going to read it little bit by little bit, see what it has for us, and see what we do from there. And so up front, I want to give you the main idea. And my apologies, this is the only slide that I made this morning, so I'll repeat the main idea a couple times for you guys. Focusing on the person and work of Jesus, live by faith, following the example of those before us. I'll say it again. Focusing on the person and work of Jesus, live by faith, following the example of those before us so first, we're going to see faith defined, and see what the definition of faith is. I mean, faith itself is a pretty simple word. It's only got five letters in it, but it carries a lot of weight. We're called to live by faith all throughout the Bible. People refer to Christianity, to what we practice as, as the Christian faith. People tell you in situations and in seasons to just remain faithful, to be faithful. But what exactly is faith? Is it just another word for hope? If not, then, then what does it mean? Well, the writer of Hebrews gives us a definition at the very beginning of chapter 11. He says, now faith is the reality of what is hoped for, the proof of what is not seen. So it's the reality of what is hoped for, which begs the question, what is hope? Or what do we hope for? Which then, if you ask what do we hope for, you'll ask what is hope? Well, John Piper offers a, what I find to be a helpful definition. He says that hope is a confident expectation and desire For something good in the future. Hope is a confident expectation and desire for something good in the future. What does this look like? Well, if 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 I were to buy a lottery ticket, I would hope to win, but I would not be confident that I'd win. There's nothing from the past, from any of my past experiences that I've either experienced myself or seen others experience. That gives me any sort of confidence that I will win. In fact, everything from the past gives me confidence that I will not win. But when I go to stand on this stage, so that's, that's no confidence, but when I go to stand on this stage, I have a confident hope that it's not going to break apart on me. It may creak and groan and sound unstable at times, but because I stood up here in the past and I've seen others stand up here, I have a confident hope that when I step on the stage, it's not going to give way. It'll support me. It's the the same way for the Christian. We look to the past and gain confidence from the life, death, and resurrection of Christ. In fact, Paul makes the case in 1 Corinthians that all of the confidence that a Christian has hinges on the resurrection of Christ. Because we believe that Christ really did come back to life and thus prove to us who He is, we now have an expectation that He will come through on His word, and that He will return to restore heaven and earth and will wipe away our pain, our sin and our grief. Our confidence comes from what Christ has done, which gives us an expectation that He will return in the future as. He promised. And so that's hope. Hope's a confident expectation and desire for something good in the future. Then what does it mean that faith is the reality of what is hoped for? If we know what we hope for, then how's faith the reality of that? Well, the writer of Hebrews is actually saying something similar to what, what James said. When he writes that faith without works is dead. You see, we we believe, we look to the past, we believe, and therefore we hope, and therefore we live, actively live, in light of that hope, which is faith. Faith is living a life characterized by the hope that we have that Christ is with us and will one day return for us. I'll say that again. Faith is living a life characterized by the hope that we have that Christ is with us and that he will one day return for us. You see, hope, in a sense, is an abstract concept when we leave it at just hope. However, when we begin to live a life that reflects the fact that we believe in the resurrection of Christ and that we hope for his return... That hope begins to to be seen, to enter into our reality. Faith shows that we really do hope in Christ, and not not just that we say that we hope in Christ. There is no such thing as abstract faith. Instead, faith is the fleshing out of a life that has been changed by Jesus. That's why it's considered a proof of what is not seen, as it says in the first verse. If someone tells me that they've begun taking a weight loss drug, I can or cannot choose to believe them. If I don't see any evidence, I can choose to believe them or not. I can't see the pills. I can't see it working inside their body. So there's no way for me to know if they're telling the truth or not. But if I begin to see Remarkable, rapid results take place as they begin to lose weight quickly. I'm going to believe them because I'm seeing proof that backs up their claim. It's the same way with faith. Faith gives a, a body to hope. It is a seen result of an unseen, an inner change. It's a seen result of an unseen change as we have been made new, or into new creations in Christ. And so again, faith is the visible reality of an inward hope. Now, thankfully, the writer of Hebrews doesn't just leave us to figure out what this looks like in our life. It doesn't leave us to figure this out in the abstract. Instead, he gives us real flesh and blood examples of people who had faith, and whose hope changed the way that they lived. Now, we're going to read through all of chapter 11, but I do want to say there is a lot in here that I cannot dive into. I just do not have the time to this morning. I would encourage you guys to go and read it at a separate time, Uh, but I do want us to be able to take the time to read through these real-life examples and see what actionable faith looked like for them. And so we're going to read through the list and then observe a few things about the people within the list. So, Hebrews 11, starting in verse 2 through the end. I'll try not to read too quickly. I'm going to start again in verse 1. It says, Now faith is the reality of what is hoped for, the proof of what is not seen. For by it, our ancestors won God's approval. By faith, we understand that the universe was created by the word of God, so that what is seen was made from things that are not visible. By faith, Abel offered to God a better sacrifice than Cain did. By faith, he was approved as a righteous man, because God approved his gifts, And even though he is dead, he still speaks through his faith. By faith, Enoch was taken away, and so he did not experience death. He was not to be found because God took him away. For before he was taken away, he was approved as one who pleased God. Now without faith, it is impossible to please God, since the one who draws near to him must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. By faith, Noah, after he was warned about what was not yet seen and motivated by godly fear, built an ark to deliver his family. By faith, he condemned the world and became an heir of the righteousness that comes by faith. By faith, Abraham, when he was called, obeyed and set out for a place that he was going to receive as an inheritance. He went out even though he did not know where he was going. By faith, he stayed as a foreigner in the land of promise, living in tents, as did Isaac and Jacob, co-heirs of the same promise. For he was looking forward to the city that has foundations, whose architect and builder is God. By faith, even Sarah herself, when she was unable to have children, received power to conceive offspring, even though she was past the age, since she considered that the one who had promised was faithful." Therefore, from from one man, in fact, from one as good as dead, came offspring as numerous as the stars of the sky and as innumerable as the grains of sand along the seashore. These all died in faith, although they had not received the things that were promised. But they saw them from a distance, greeted them, and confessed that they were foreigners and temporary residents on the earth. Now those who say such things make it clear that they are seeking a homeland." But if they were thinking about where they came from, they would have had an opportunity to return, but they now desire a better place, a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared a city for them. By faith, Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac. He received the promises, and yet he was offering his one and only son, the one to whom it had been said, your offspring will be called through Isaac. He considered God to be able even to raise someone from the dead. Therefore, he received them back, figuratively speaking. By faith, Isaac blessed Jacob and Esau concerning things to come. By faith, Jacob, when he was dying, blessed each of the sons of Joseph, and he worshipped, leaning on the top of his staff. By faith, Joseph, as he was nearing the end of his life, mentioned the exodus of the Israelites and gave instructions concerning his bones. By faith, Moses, after he was born, was hidden by his parents for three months because they saw that the child is beautiful and they didn't fear the king's edict. By faith, Moses, when he had grown up, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter and chose to suffer the people of God rather than to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. For he considered reproach for the sake of Christ to be greater wealth than the treasures of Egypt, since he was looking ahead to the reward. By faith he left Egypt behind, not being afraid of the king's anger, for Moses persevered as one who sees him who is invisible. By faith he instituted the Passover and the sprinkling of the blood, so that the destroyer of the firstborn might not touch the Israelites. By faith they crossed the Red Sea as though they were on dry land. When the Egyptians attempted to do this, they were drowned. By faith, the walls of Jericho fell down after being marched around by the Israelites for seven days. By faith, Rahab the prostitute welcomed the spies in peace and didn't perish with those who disobeyed. And what more can I say? Time is too short for me to tell about Gideon, Barak, Samson, Jephthah, David, Samuel, and the prophets who by faith conquered kingdoms, administered justice, obtained promises, shut the mouths of lions, quenched the raging of fire, escaped the edge of the sword, gained strength and weakness, became mighty in battle, and put foreign armies to flight. Women received their dead, raised to life again. Other people were tortured, not accepting release, so that they might gain a better resurrection. Others experienced mockings and scourging, as well as bonds and imprisonment. They were stoned, they were sawed in two, they died by the sword, they wandered about in sheepskins and goatskins, destitute, afflicted and mistreated. The world was not worthy of them. They wandered in deserts and on mountains, hiding in caves and holes in the ground. All these were approved through their faith, but they did not receive what was promised. Since God had provided something better for us, so that they would not be made perfect without us. So, that is a long list. A long list. I think it was worth our time to read through, and I want to take a few minutes just to take uh, observe a couple of things about the people within this list, about the list as a whole. First, I want us to see that that faith takes many forms. Faith takes many forms. For Abel, it meant giving up something, giving up his very best. For Noah, it meant acquiring something, that is, wood, so that he could build an ark. Enoch was taken up by God, he escaped death, while Moses was left to suffer with the people of Israel. Abraham at one time was called to go with no-name destination, but at other times, faith meant that he needed to stay for an unnamed amount of time. Israel was called, to, was called to tear down the walls of Jericho, and Rahab was called to be a refuge, a safe place. Sarah was given a child. Abraham was called to give that child up. You see, we can, we can fall into the trap of thinking that faith must look the same for everybody. We think that there is one mold that everyone must squeeze into, and if you're not doing what I think you should be doing, then you're not being faithful. But we can see from this list, faith takes many forms. This is not meant to provide an excuse to us to not be faithful, Uh, It's not supposed to be a cop-out, but it is a call to us to examine our own lives and to see what faithfulness looks like now, in this time, in this season of life. And that also means that we need to be gracious with one another, not holding others to a standard that God is not holding them to. The call is to see how the Lord is calling me to be faithful right now. In this time, in space. And then to be faithful in that way. How does the hope that I have in Christ affect my particular situation in life at this moment? And so we see that faith takes many different forms. Number two, we see that all of the people on this list were incredibly flawed. Deeply messed up. Just flip to a random page of the Old Testament and odds are you'll find a story of one of these people failing in some miserable way. Abraham gave his wife over to a king to have his way with her so that he could be spared of his own life. He also took up a concubine because he trusted his own methods over God's. Moses murdered someone. Noah got drunk. Isaac didn't do as God said when it came to blessing his sons. Jacob was a mess, was a wreck in so many different ways, including deceiving his own father, Isaac, who's also on the list. Samson chose pleasures with a woman over God. David was an adulterer, deceiver, and murderer. And the list goes on. And on. We can be tempted to think that this list is full of perfect people. After all, it's, it's dubbed the Hall of Faith. That's what it's called. But it's not full of perfect people at all. It is full of messed up people. And I mean like legitimately messed up. And yet, yet despite their flaws, God used them to accomplish great Things He redeemed their messes and used them for his glory. And so as you, as you look at this list, you may be feeling too messed up. Well, let me encourage you. They also were messed up and probably more messed up than we are. You are not too flawed to be used by God. That's what grace is all about. God takes our, our messes and makes them Beautiful. You can be faithful, even in the midst of your mess. And so we see that faith takes many different forms. We see that the people on here were all deeply flawed. We also see that they were all radically ordinary. Again, when you think about these people, you may think Hall of Faith means heroes. Only the best of the best go to the Hall of Fame for rock and roll, for the NBA, for whatever So you may be be thinking these are the best of the best. They're superheroes. But if you go through the list of people, you'll find that they are ordinary people. Abraham was just a guy from the Middle East without a home. David was a shepherd, which we may hold in high regard because of our understanding through the Bible. After all, he fought off lions and bears. But think about that. He had to fight off lions and bears. Nobody wants that job. Moses had a stammer and wandered in the desert for years before coming back to Egypt to free the people of Israel. The list continues on with ordinary people who were empowered by an extraordinary God. They did nothing in and of themselves. Instead, they just made themselves available to God, trusted Him with their lives and lived in light of that. It's the ordinary that God uses. And it's been that way forever. In fact, Justo Gonzalez, a Christian historian, notes that the gospel first exploded, spread throughout the world, not on the backs of the apostles, but on the backs of everyday tradesmen, travelers, and merchants who became Christians And then as they travel, just continue to share the message of Jesus. God can use you. This list is not just for us to drop our jaw at, though that is an appropriate response. It's also made to be a mirror and to remind us that we too can be used by an extraordinary God. You are not too low, too ordinary, to make a radical impact on the kingdom of God as he empowers you to do so. And so we see as faith was fleshed out, as we see real life examples of faith, we see that faith takes many forms. We see that the people were deeply flawed and that they were radically ordinary. And now, after giving us this incredible list of examples, these people who had real faith Lived out their faith. The writer gives us an imperative. He tells us to do something. Now, before you look, what would you expect the writer to tell you to do? Personally, I would expect him to say, go and and do that. Go and do this. Live a faithful life. Do great things for God. I would think that he would call us to go on the offensive. Or to, to do something that we aren't doing right now. But he doesn't. Instead, his first words after the hall of faith, these incredible examples, are these. He says, therefore, since we also have such a large cloud of witnesses surrounding us, these people are here cheering us on, let us lay aside every hindrance and the sin that so easily ensnares us. That's odd. Why would his first words be, For us to do something that seems kind of negative, not positive in terms of adding something on, but negative to to get rid of. That's not what I expected. I would expect him to use the momentum of the passage and tell us to do something great. So why lead with that? Why lead with laying aside? Well, the answer is similar to Matthew 13, where a man finds a treasure in a field and goes and sells Everything that he has to buy and obtain that field because he wants the treasure. It's because when you found the best thing, you get rid of the other things. Even things that are in the category of good or better. Because you want the best thing. That's why in verse 16 of the previous chapter, the writer describes those in the hall of faith as desiring a better place. Most of the people on the list had it good. They could have lived a a good life, a comfortable life. But they chose to lay that aside because they saw the best life. And they wanted that. They saw intimacy with God, a home with God, and lived a life that reflected that. And that's why the the call is to lay aside every hindrance and sin. We should get rid of the things that, that keep us from the best. But notice he doesn't just say to lay aside sin. I mean, that, that would make sense, right? Like, obviously, every Christian should be fighting sin. It also tells us to lay aside every hindrance. But what is that? What is a hindrance? Simply, a, a hindrance is anything that could be distracting you from living a faithful life. It could be anything that's distracting you from living a faithful life. Now, you could hear that. And immediately think that I'm saying that you should get rid of everything that's not reading your Bible, evangelizing, praying, or going to church. Just up front. That is not what I mean at all. And that's not what's meant here. That's a, that's a pretty shallow view of the Christian life. Christians are called to enjoy God. Which can be done by enjoying the world that he's placed us in and right worship to him. He's given us friends, family, food, Parties, nature, and on and on and on. And as we enjoy these things, we're reminded of God's goodness to us, and we worship God as we enjoy what He's given us. So, I'm not saying just do the four basic Christian spiritual disciplines. That is not what I'm saying. Instead, a hindrance. What is a hindrance? Well, just like faith, it looks different on every person. It looks different for every person. It can be a thing, like social media potentially, or an emotion, like pent-up frustration over something in the past that is keeping you from being faithful now. In order to figure out what your hindrances are, I'm not going to spend time trying to tell you them because again, it looks different for every person. Instead, I think you should ask the following questions. What consumes most of my time and thoughts? Do these things rightfully deserve that place in my life? And then what am I missing out on by prioritizing these things? So again, what consumes most of my time and thoughts? Do these things rightfully deserve that place in my life? And what am I missing out on by prioritizing these things? I would encourage you also to take the time to have those close to you answer the questions for you. You may honestly be doing great. That's wonderful. That's great. I just want us to, we just want to be honest with ourselves as we put down the good for what is best. And so as we lay aside the things that could slow us down, even the good things, the better things, so that we can obtain the best thing, We then take on the offensive. We are called to run with endurance the race that lies before us. Now, notice, there are two words in there that are not super popular. And that is run and endurance. The writer of Hebrews isn't trying to to butter us up. He knows that the Christian life is a hard life. It's a long one as well. Just like you might hit a wall when running a marathon, not might, you will hit a wall when you run a marathon, just you'll continue to hit walls in the Christian life. I mean, just look at the example of people that was listed in chapter 11. They faced obstacle after obstacle and endured suffering caused by others and themselves. They were often left to wait on God and didn't know what was happening next. We may see how they overcame, but in the moment, they probably did not think that they were overcoming. But because they wanted the best thing, because they desired a better place, because they looked ahead to what was in the future, they continued to put one foot in front of the other, and they continued to be faithful. They endured the hardship by continuing to show up. Now, if we left it there, Nothing would be wrong, per se. You'd leave here today, hopefully, feeling the desire to live a faithful life. Maybe you'd leave doing some self examination to see how you could continue to be faithful. But then, as you began to think about the trajectory of life and how long life hopefully is, you'd probably feel overwhelmed. It might feel like a big weight on your shoulders. You'd probably begin to to beat yourself up because you already feel like you have so much going on. And now you're supposed to do more? And honestly, you'd be right to respond that way. If the riders stopped there, we'd feel like it's up to us to see good things happen in the world. And we feel like it's up to our effort to make it the distance. It's like being at the bottom of a hill, not seeing the top, and not knowing if you're going to make it all the way. But thankfully, graciously, the rider does not stop there. He doesn't leave us there. Instead, he sets the passage up so that the most important aspect of this passage is not about the cloud of witnesses. It's not about putting off hindrances and sin. It's not even on us enduring and running the race. Instead, the most important sentence of this passage is the beginning of verse 2, which is that we are to keep our eyes on Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of our faith. That's the key to living a life of faith, a faithful life. When I was in driver's ed, they taught us that wherever we look is where the car will go. If we look to the right, we're automatically going to start steering the car to the right. If we look to the left, we're automatically going to start steering the car to the left. And that's what's going on here. When we look to Jesus in his true form, in his true beauty, we'll be so caught up that we'll run straight towards him. He'll be the thing that we want most, that we enjoy most. Sure, the people in the hall of faith are great, but they all pale in comparison to Jesus. He's so much better. Think about what he accomplished in enduring the cross, despising the shame, and then coming back to life and sitting down at the right hand of the throne of God. He offered a better sacrifice than Abel did because he offered himself. He was nearer to God than Enoch because he is God himself. He is better than Noah because he didn't just build a vessel to save the people of God. He is the vessel that saves the people from God or the people of God. He is better than Abraham because he didn't just step out of a homeland. He stepped out of heaven. He did that not just so that he could gain his own inheritance like Abraham, but so that we could gain his inheritance. He's better than Sarah because he didn't just want a child but he gives us all the ability to be children of God. He's again better than Abraham because he didn't give up what belonged to him. He gave up himself. He's better than Isaac, Jacob, and Joseph because he didn't just give right instructions at his death. Instead, his his death becomes the very means of our salvation. He is better than Moses because he suffered what was never his to suffer and thus leads his people permanently out of slavery. He's better than Israel casting down the walls of Jericho because he cast down the great wall between us and God. He's better than Rahab because he gave up his own life to give us refuge and peace. He is a better king than David because he doesn't sacrifice us to cover up his own sin, but sacrifices himself to cover our sins. And he's better than the prophets because he not only calls us to follow God, but empowers us with the ability to do so. Jesus Christ is the reason for our faith, the source of our faith, the one who instituted our faith, the one who lived our faith out to perfection. And he is the one who will continue to sustain our faith. If we keep our eyes on the circumstances around us, or even on our own thoughts, actions, and deeds, we will fail. But when we look to Jesus, when we fall in love with Him, when we really see and experience His love for us, and when we look to Him as the source of our faith, we will be sustained, we'll be empowered, we'll be faithful. And so as we think about this upcoming year and who we are, and what we value, the primary call isn't actually to be faithful. The primary call is to remember Jesus. It's to look at Him, to see Him in His beauty, in His glory, and to remember His work. It's to remember that your actions are not what make you worthy. He is the one that makes you worthy. So today... The call is to find joy in Him. Remind yourself of His love for you. And as you dwell on that, as you remember that He went before us and lived the difficult life and endured the pain and the shame that the cross held for Him, there will be only one kind of life that you'll want to live, and that's the faithful life. Lord, we are grateful for You stepping out of heaven to offer yourself up lord you didn't just endure personal physical pain lord you endured spiritual pain you endured shame Lord. you took on what was ours to bear because of that you are the pioneer and the perfecter of our faith you went before us lord you don't call us to do anything that you haven't done yourself Spirit, we're thankful that you empower us to be able to live the faithful life. Help us to continue to cling to hope that you're with us and that, Jesus, you will one day return. And then as we cling to that hope, help us to be faithful in our lives. Spirit, show us exactly what that looks like in our lives. Lord, whatever it is that we need to cast off, whatever it is that we need to start doing, Lord, help us to be faithful to show outwardly what is going on inwardly, Lord, that you have saved us and that we are new creations. Help us to look to you, to find joy in you, to find satisfaction in you. Lord, help us to follow you well. Lord, we love you, we praise you, and we ask these things in your Son's name. Amen.